0: It's Friday, 7th of July, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, key takeaways from our Q3 outlooks with our global and markets teams. But now I'm joined by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi David, how's it going? Good. I mean, one day we're going to come on this podcast and talk about, I don't know, gardening or, or the ashes, or, or maybe you don't want to talk about the ashes. Not going to talk about the ashes. No, we're not going to talk about. But there is a reason that we do come on every week, and I start asking you all about central banks and inflation. I mean, what on earth has been happening in the bond market?
1: Yes, we're speaking Friday morning London time, and we've just seen over the course of this week kind of yields shoot higher across the board, across across advanced economies. I think what's interesting about this bond market sell-off compared to, to previous sell-offs has been that it's not just been at the short end of the curve. Previously, what's happened when the market has been spooked by strong economic activity data or fears about inflation is that the short end of the curve, yields at the short end have shot up, But yields at the long end have, have increased a bit, but, but, but not really by much. And so the, the curve has inverted and, and, and the, the steepness of that inversion has increased. This week, we've seen yields across the curve increase. And that might be the first sign that the bond market starting to get a bit jittery about where inflation might land in the long term and where rates might land in the long term. So big week in the bond market. But I think behind the, the moves in yields, perhaps it's a concern about where inflation and rates are heading in the medium term.
0: Yeah, it's it's shaping up to be a, a challenging few days going into the June CPI release for the US, which is coming on Wednesday. Talk through what we're expecting there.
1: Yes, we expect further fall in headline inflation in the US, three point two percent year on year. We've penciled in, of course, most of the focus is on core inflation and not just on the annual rates, but actually the, the month-on-month increases. So we've got a point three percent month-on-month increase in core inflation in the US. That will bring the annual rate down to about 5%, so the year-on-year rate down to about 5%. So 0.3% month-on-month for both headline and core. Signs that pressures are easing then, inflation pressures are easing, but obviously 0.3% month-on-month is 3.6% annualized. So still above the Fed's target. I think the bottom line here is that inflation pressures are moderating, but still moderating quite slowly.
0: And I mean, taking a step back, this all feeds into this idea that we're 18 months into this, this tightening cycle and economies and, and labor markets more specifically haven't really responded enough to these aggressive increases. You look at a lot of the data, you wouldn't have thought we'd had four or 500 basis points of, of rate hikes. We, we often talk at Capital Economics about how monetary policy works with a long and variable lag. How long and, and how variable? Yes, yeah, good
1: question. We've spoken, haven't we, on this podcast about the, the lags in monetary policy a lot. I mean, actually, if you look at some of the measures of pipeline price pressures, I think that's going to continue to ease. The headline CPI will continue to ease over the coming months. If you look at things like PPI inflation, that's coming down. There's been some better news recently from used vehicle prices. Anecdotal evidence of manufacturers having to offer some quite hefty discounts now to to, to shift inventory. So, I think I think there's going to be some better news coming on the inflation front over the the second half of this year. The real signs of resilience, and the thing that's yet to really crack though is the labor markets. There could be various reasons for that, including the fact the economies may just be running a bit hotter than than we had thought, perhaps because of that big injection of stimulus around the pandemic. But I think another part of this, a key part of this, is the fact, as you say, that monetary policy operates with a lag. Now, difficult to exactly pin this down, but most of our analysis suggests that probably only about a half of the of full effects of monetary tightening so far have yet to be felt in the real economy. So, half of the tightening that we've we've had yet to be felt, and of course, the tightening cycle that we're in at the moment is the the biggest and the most aggressive for the last forty years. There's so still quite a lot of the effects of that tightening to come through,
0: and we'd we'll be looking for the impact of that tightening on on financial conditions and expecting them to tighten enough without breaking anything. Of course. But to the point that, that, or to the extent that, activity cools and, and that helps take the steam out of inflation, we've got our in-house set of financial conditions indices. Talk through a bit about what they're currently telling us about this process that you talk of with monetary policy transmission.
1: Yeah, and what what they're showing us are in-house measures of financial conditions is that financial conditions have indeed tightened substantially over the past year or so. And they've remained pretty tight over the past couple of months, but they're not continuing to tighten in response to central bank interest rate hikes. So most of the tightening in financial conditions that we saw took place really over the, the back end of 2022 and, this, and the start of 2023. Over the, over the past few months, financial conditions have remained tight, but they're not continuing to tighten, which I think is an important distinction. Now, when we start to map our... FCIs against measures of GDP growth, and we look at recession indicators, I'm afraid to say that they are consistent with the kind of tightness of financial conditions that we've seen in the run-up to recession. So again, something that not yet seen in the real economy because of the long variable lags, but the tightness of financial conditions and the speed with which they've tightened would, on a historical basis, be consistent with economies falling into recession at some point over the next six months or so.
0: And we've got Ariane Curtis- from our global team and and Tom Matthews from Markets coming up in a bit to get into the specifics of all of that. And and Tom's going to be talking about where we think bond yields are heading through the end of this year, going into 2024. I wanted to wrap up, Neil, a very different topic. Your weekly note, published every Monday for for Capital Economics clients. So going out later in the day that this podcast is, is being released, It's all about our 2023 Spotlight project. Can you talk about what Spotlight is and and what it's looking at this year?
1: Yes. So Spotlight is something we do once a year. It's an opportunity really to step back from the daily ebb and flow of markets and to think about the big issues that will drive the global economy and financial market outcomes over the coming years and decades. Last year, we looked at global economic fracturing, which is a term that we use. The IMF has done a lot of work and have called this fragmentation. But this is the idea that U.S.-China relationship is is fracturing, and and that this will have big spillovers to the rest of the world. So we, we did a big in-depth report on on that about this time last year. This year, we're going to tackle the subject of AI, artificial intelligence. Now. On the one hand, that may not come as a surprise because you can't move for research on AI and its macro implications at the moment. But we think that there's something missing here, which is not to say that the research produced so far on AI is in any way deficient. It's just that it's perhaps a bit partial. So there's lots of good stuff written about the implications for, for economic growth, for example, but nothing that then ties that to the implications for inflation and likewise, nothing on the jobs market implications for what it might mean for policy or regulation. So what we're attempting to do and what we will do in, in, in our spotlight report this year is provide a framework for market participants to think about the, the economic and market implications of the AI revolution. And that will be comprehensive. So it will cover not just the impact on growth, but how the proceeds of that growth is shared and what that means for inflation and what that means for regulation and what it implies for catch-up growth in emerging economies And also tying it back into the report from last year on US-China, whether or not AI will become a new fault line in global economic fracturing. So timeline is, we'll be producing this over the summer and publishing it in September. And then of course, uh, there'll be a range of events in September, October, both online and in person that we'll deliver this this research in, and it will be an opportunity for clients to, to quiz the authors too.
0: And similar to our work on fracturing, the the report that was published in September, that really just marks the start of of the work, doesn't it? The Economist team are going to be following the AI narrative and continuing to look at how it's it's going to shape economies and, and markets in the years ahead.
1: Yes, exactly. This is something that is fluid, just like fracturing. So there's a big page on our website where we put all of our analysis and research on global economic fracturing. Of course, the story there is always evolving, and the same will be true with AI. So... As you say, this marks the starting gun, as it were, and there'll be lots more to come on this from us over the the kind of years and decades.
0: That was Neil Shearing on central banks, financial conditions, and our upcoming work on AI i'll link to his note on the podcast page once it's published and we'll be bringing you much more on our work on ai after the summer so look out for that also look out for our coverage in the coming week of the us cpi report our us team will also be holding a drop-in which is one of our short form webinars on their q3 outlook report which is all about the economy and the feds that's on thursday you can find details of that on our events page We've also got drop-ins after key decisions from central banks in Canada and Korea in the coming week, and our EM team will be discussing their outlook for those economies in a session on Thursday. Now, Neil was talking about the bond market's freakout and how it's rooted in these ideas of persistent inflation and higher for longer interest rates. Later after we spoke, the June payrolls release came out, and that pointed to a cooling US labour market helping drive Treasury yields back down again. But there's still huge uncertainty around conflicting data and signs that inflation isn't responding quickly enough to higher rates, and markets remain on edge. Our Global and Markets teams tackle these issues head-on in their Q3 Outlook reports These contain our latest analysis and forecasts about where the global economy is going and what that means for major asset classes. The teams will be briefing clients in a drop-in this coming Tuesday. But before that, here's my chat with Ariane Curtis from our global team and Tom Matthews from Markets about the key takeaways. I start by asking Ariane about whether the resilience we've seen in recent economic data is set to continue. So
2: the resilience in advanced economies that we've seen so far, is really due to a combination of supply and demand factors such as supply shortages easing, backlogs of work being worked through, and households using their pandemic savings to support consumption. And it's also been a case that the China rebound has also contributed to a strong start to the year globally. But we do think that these props should fade. So, for example, shortages now seem to largely not be an issue. And the latest global manufacturing PMIs suggest that backlogs have largely cleared now, which was already starting to weigh on manufacturing activity globally in June. And we've also seen that the China rebound is already starting to lose steam. But on top of this, the biggest factor that means that the resilience will fade is that we still expect about half of the monetary hit to be felt, really. So our financial conditions indices point to recessions being likely in most advanced economies. And we think that the resilience at the start of the year means that, yes, they will be quite mild with peak trough falls and GDP of less than 1% in all cases, and that they're only going to start later this year. But we still do think that advanced economies will succumb to these recessions, which is slightly below consensus
0: the the fight against inflation quite obviously sits at the very heart of, of the outlook you've just published. Lots of concern about the persistence of inflation in developed economies. Talk through how we see price pressures developing from here.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. So it's important first to differentiate between headline and core inflation. So we're already starting to see headline inflation falling sharply, it has been for several months now, and that should continue to happen. So energy inflation, for example, is now negative in advanced economies. Food inflation is finally starting to fall and core goods inflation should resume its decline, given the easing of shortages. But core inflation and especially core services inflation is still proving to be very sticky. Services inflation is now, you know the main contributor to inflation in advanced economies, contributing about two-thirds to the total rate in advanced economies. And that's really partly due to the very tight labor markets which we have seen, which is fueling strong wage pressures there. We do think that core inflation should fall in the coming year as the mild recessions weigh on activity. But it's going to take a bit longer than we previously expected for it to reach the 2% targets, really only probably by the end of 2024, so the end of next year, will it really approach targets. And for example, Powell said at Sintra that he doesn't expect core inflation in the US to reach target until 2025.
0: Yeah, lots of pushback at that that Sintra forum. We discussed it on the last podcast with, with Neil Shearing seem to be a lot of effort on the part of central bankers there to push back against market expectations. The rate cuts are going to come anytime soon. What can you say about this whole monetary cycle? When will tightening turn to easing and, and how much easing could we expect when it does happen?
2: Yeah. So the resilience and activity and the You know, tight labor markets means that rate cuts now won't come, we don't think, until 2024 in all the advanced economies. Even recently, we pushed out our forecast for rate cuts in New Zealand, which we had previously thought would be the one advanced economy central bank which would cut by the end of this year. When they do cut, the Fed is probably going to be the first of the major central banks to cut rates. That could be possibly in Q1 of next year. But on the other hand, the more persistent core inflation outlook in the UK and the Eurozone means that the Bank of England and the ECB probably won't really be in positions to cut rates until later next year. That being said, when rate cuts do come, we expect them to be fairly aggressive. And that's largely because we do still expect these mild recessions, which should do some of the work for the central banks by weighing on inflation.
0: This is quite obviously a very DM-focused story. It's it's very much about what's happening in advanced economies. What about emerging markets? What's the story there?
2: Yeah, so we're a bit less downbeat on the prospects for emerging markets in aggregate. As mentioned, in China, we do think growth will slow from here as the rebound kind of peters out. But we are less pessimistic on China than some other forecasters. And if the government does announce more stimulus measures, primarily fiscal stimulus, then this could support activity somewhat there. In terms of the policy outlook, emerging markets were earlier than their advanced economy, than advanced economy central banks to hike rates. So therefore, they're in a position where they can cut rates a bit earlier as well. And we expect some to start cutting this year. But there is still an issue with core inflation being quite sticky in some emerging markets too, especially in emerging market in Latin America. So we don't think actually that the rate cuts in these emerging markets will actually be as aggressive as what markets seem to be pricing in right now.
0: Tom, I'd like to bring you in at this point and discuss the market's impact. At the moment, we've got high and rising bond yields and stocks have had a pretty good year in general, a great one if you've been long US tech. What happens to these trends as the macro story that Ariane's just outlined develops? Could you start with equities? Well, I think there are really
3: two, two related debates going on in the equity market at the moment. The first is, will there be a recession in developed market economies this year? Well, Ariane's, of course, given you our answer to that, we think there will be. But the second question is, will that actually matter for stock markets? I think you know, there's a decent case now that if people have been talking about recessions for so long... Uh, earnings expectations have fallen, investors have perhaps become a little bit more cautious, notwithstanding the gains the stock market's made this year, that maybe a recession wouldn't really matter. And in particular, I think, Ariane, as Ariane mentioned, we're forecasting a fairly mild recession. Perhaps that wouldn't put too much of a dent in the stock market. I think the counter argument to that, and the one that we believe, is that every recession in the US since World War II, bar one, has resulted in a decent decline in the stock market. That in, that includes all the mild recessions, that includes ones that didn't last very long, and ones very much in line with what we're forecasting now. I think you know, as mild as the recession is, it's very hard for investors to have the courage to buy risky assets at the onset of one. You re- never really know right at the start just how deep it's going to be, and that appetite for risk really diminishes. I think the second point to note on that front is that. Even though earnings expectations have fallen, even though economists as well have become more pessimistic on their forecasts, they're probably still not really consistent with an actual recession already being priced in. Earnings forecasts for major corporates, for example, seem to be on the way up in recent months. They're not really at a level, I think, anywhere near consistent with what we've seen in previous recessions. So, given all that, wouldn't be surprised to see the stock market struggle over the back half of this year, if, as we suspect, growth in developed market economy starts
0: to slow. Your global markets outlook talks about near-term pain, long-term gain. You've talked about the pain. Can you talk through the gain? Absolutely. As, As you pointed out in that outlook, we told a much more positive story
3: in the long term. And there's really two parts to that. The first is the immediate recovery from the recession. So just as you get a fall uh, during the onset of the recession, once you start to see those green shoots in the economy, once appetite for risk starts to return, you should expect the market to bounce back pretty quickly. So we're forecasting near-term pain, but we don't really think that will necessarily last too long. And by next year, appetite for risk should be on the up. And the second part of that story and why we've recently revised up our equity market forecasts is to do with this growing enthusiasm that we see in certain parts of the market about the possibilities for so-called AI technology to give corporate earnings a boost in particular. We've already seen that obviously in a small number of companies, particularly concentrated in the US. You know, We've seen investors really bid up the share prices of, as you said, the big tech companies in particular, which look like they might be first in line to benefit from this technology. But the experience of Previous sort of transformative technologies like this, regardless of just how transformative you think AI will prove, the experience of these sorts of technologies is that enthusiasm about them tends to grow over a reasonably long period of time, and it tends to broaden out and include more of the stock market over time as well, and stock markets to some extent in different countries too, even if we think the US might continue to lead the charge on that front. so. Our sense is, based on the possibilities for AI tech to boost the economy, but perhaps more importantly, the possibility of investors' enthusiasm about the technology to continue to grow over the next couple of years, certainly once the recession's out of the way, our sense is that that will continue to be a pretty strong tailwind for stock prices, certainly in 2024 and in 2025. And so we're now forecasting quite large gains in equities, particularly in the U.S., over those two periods
0: so near-term challenging for equities long-term things looking much much brighter what about the outlook for bonds we've got recessions that will end tightening cycles and open the door at least to rate cuts Uh, next year as Ariane says what does that mean for government and corporate yields well maybe starting
3: with government bonds there i think as Ariane said probably in the near term it looks like central banks are just reaching the end of their tightening cycles and maybe aren't going to be cutting quite quite as quickly as we'd thought, I think you can see a similar sort of story playing out in investors expectations, which have been revised up or pushed back. Cuts have been pushed back over the last few months. So, so as far as those go, I mean, our own forecasts are now pretty close to what investors are expecting over the rest of this year. But I think where it really gets interesting is on the easing cycle. Once we get to those points, what is actually going to happen? And in particular, I think investors may well be underestimating just how far and how fast rates are going to eventually be cut. As Ariane said, one key reason for that is they might not be expecting the recessions that we think are going to come that are going to sap inflationary pressures. But I think Equally, you've seen a big upward revision in investors' expectations for so-called neutral policy rates over the last year or two, as economies have really not responded as quickly as you might have expected to the rate hikes. It's quite possible that if, as we expect, growth starts to slow and inflation starts to come back down, you'd see those neutral rate estimates fall well before central banks actually get policy back down to neutral. And that's why that we think would be quite a big tailwind for long-dated government bonds, added... With, of course, with the appetite for risk deteriorating as during the recession that we forecast. So we're still forecasting pretty decent declines in the yields of long dated sovereign bonds this year and to a lesser extent next year once central banks actually start cutting. So that's the first part of that story. The second part of the story is corporate bonds. Now, of course, uh, big falls in safe government bond yields and, and sovereign bond yields is a big tailwind for corporate bonds. But the picture is a bit more complicated there in the near term. You very rarely would see corporate bond yields falling, particularly materially during a recession, and that's just because their spreads to safe assets tend to rise as appetite for risk diminishes. That's been the experience, as I say, in in almost every US recession since World War II. That's something like what we're forecasting this time, that a rise in corporate credit spreads as growth slows will more than offset any fall in yields. And I think, uh, as I say, if you look at how tight spreads are now, they're just simply it's just not credible to us that they're really pricing it in a sort of recession that we expect, even a fairly mild one. Looking further ahead, I think there is a bit more room for positivity. As I said, on equities, you do get a rebound in sentiment after the green shoots in the economy start to show. That might be a bit before the recession is actually over. But further ahead, we're maybe not quite as upbeat on corporate bonds as we are in equities. And the reason for that is just that we're not so sure that they're as well placed to benefit from enthusiasm about AI as equities are. There's just obviously more limited upside to hold to bonds. And secondly, compositionally, some of these big tech companies in particular just don't issue a whole lot of them. They don't have big weights in the major bond market industry. So not quite so optimistic on those, although we do think they'll do well in 2024 and 2025 as well.
0: That was senior markets economist Tom Matthews and Ariane Curtis from our global economics team on our Q3 Outlooks. We've got a page dedicated to those reports on our website, and I'll post them on the podcast page. There's a link in the show notes to our website, capitaleconomics.com, where you can find all this analysis. And if you're a CE Advanced client, you get access to all the Q3 reports, our financial conditions indices and underlying data, and much more. Next week, I'll be joined by Liam Peach from our Emerging Europe team. He'll be talking about what lies ahead for Russia's economy after that extraordinarily failed military rebellion. But that's it for this week. Until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.